right? Um, our gospel passage this morning is taken from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Gospel of our Lord. Well, uh, as Pastor Jeff said, we are in the second Sunday of Easter here. So, hallelujah, he is risen. Um, Y'all know we had, how many, pop quiz, I have these occasionally, how many days of preparation leading up to Easter? We have 40 days, of course you don't count Sundays, so it's kind of at 46 from the Wednesday to Sunday. How many days of Easter? What? Oh, Rosalie. Pastor Jeff's giving you the answer here. Pentecost, Pentecost us, 50 days, right? Yes, yes, 50 days, exactly right, Rosalie. 50 days. As Pastor Jeff likes to say, the feast is always longer than the fast. The command here that we have, and that just as we had in the season to repent, is now to rejoice and to celebrate. Again, if that can be commanded, there's a way that we can fulfill that, and part of that is being willing to be in this space, right? God gave us not just the one Sunday a year, but every Sunday to practice that act of praising, rejoicing. And also, as we get into these stories, you'll notice in Easter specifically panels, so to speak, in the Gospels, where the disciples encounter the risen Lord. So we're encouraged to see ourselves precisely as a continuing of that story and tell in our lives of the resurrection, of our encounter of Christ's resurrection as we live it out in hospitality, generosity, and love for one another. Today in the scripture readings, we particularly encounter these undeniable moments of our living God, our resurrected Lord, whose presence is activity in a world that can so often charge his absence. I think one of the things that's 
sort of wonderful, maybe just about the human experience, is that it, when, when it comes to faith and doubt, we're all in the same boat together, right? Not everything that can be believed should be believed. I got a million dollars in a Nigerian bank account, and if you'll just give me your bank account info and pay a couple wire fees, I'll give you a cut of it. Does that sound good to everybody? I just, just give me that, that account info, and we'll, we'll get it going here. But then there are some things, not only is it that everything that can be believed should be believed, but we can't believe in nothing. For instance, if I didn't believe that this floor right now could hold me up, I wouldn't be able to come up here and preach to you all. If I didn't believe the sound system would work, you guys would have a hard time to hear me. If you guys didn't believe that I could preach, you wouldn't be here listening. There's a lot of faith actually right now in this moment. And the thing that we're all looking for in our lives is believing in good faith. Is this, in fact, backed up by the things that we see that we witness in our lives. And right now I would tell you that my belief here that the floor will continue to hold me, that I won't just sink into the ground, is something in good faith. The remarkable thing too, and maybe part of the paradox and the tension is, is that we actually operate within the bounds of what we think is believable. Again, if I didn't believe I could be up here, you all wouldn't have the opportunity to hear this word proclaimed right now, at least by me. So the right kinds of faith enable us to flourish, or to say, for instance, if I didn't believe that any food was good for my body and never ate it, I wouldn't actually, my body would just slowly wither away. I have to believe that. On the one hand, we don't want to be easily deceived or misled, but on the other, we have to be open to persuasion. So the scriptures then this morning declare of a faith in a world that's gone unpredictably good, in which God is loved, the world is God's domain, Christ is raised, and he is now Lord of all. And the question, maybe, that is heard back so often when this gospel is preached is then why does this story seem so much at odds with the story that we hear going on in the world? So often sins go uncorrected. People inflict on each other heart, hurt, harm, and suffering. Those who do right are unnoticed or they themselves are persecuted. This all-powerful God that we encounter here in Scripture that delivers people from prisons, that raises the dead, that gives visions of his coming kingdom, this seems to be outmatched by the powers of this world, both those that are human and those that are the death-dealing forces of sin. And the question becomes, is believing in Christ just something to help us deal with the harsh reality of this life? That's the space in which doubt creeps, right? I love C.S. Lewis has this way of talking about a mercenary heart, and maybe sometimes that's what I kind of feel, where it's my heart goes to the highest bidder. At times, I really want to believe this story of Christ being raised from the dead, of the power of the Spirit that is kind of reworking and remaking this world, but maybe sometimes I hedge my butt on the powers that I see operating on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe I get a little bit caught up when it comes to being wronged and trying to right those wrongs on my own or in trying to get ahead on my own. And the question becomes, is this radical gospel where you forgive your enemies, where you pour out yourself for the sake of others, really possible? The early church lived that because precisely they thought that Jesus being raised from the dead, the story of this Messiah who suffered and died, and then was resurrected, was in fact most, it had the best ability to explain the world 
around them and its nature. For Christians, the power of our faith is that it can be tasted, touched, heard, and seen. So I think it's it's really it's it's a neat thing to pay close attention then to our readings this morning to Thomas, to John the Revelator, and to the Apostles, as they experience this collision between faith in the powers of this world and faith in the eternal God. I'm going to focus primarily this morning on the gospel passage. Really quickly, I'll, I'll kind of refer back to uh, the Acts and the Revelation. But in the gospel passage, we have Thomas, who's kind of the standout. He's one of the 12 apostles. You all know the story that they tell in Acts. To be defined as an apostle, you had to be one who walked, who talked, uh, who kind of traveled with Jesus, who knew of his ministry, who had seen his deeds. And so Thomas here also about the apostles is that they had kind of left, and as Peter says in the gospels, they had left and given up everything to follow Christ. So the 12 apostles are extremely committed, right? They believe that what Jesus is doing at some level is more true, more powerful than, again, all of the things that are around them. To go a little bit deeper, in the Synoptic Gospels, Thomas is recorded in that list of 12 apostles. He doesn't say anything. But in John's Gospel, importantly, before this moment, in chapter 20, he has two things that he says. In 14.5, this is when Jesus says, this often gets read at funerals, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare them for you, and you know the way to where I am going, to which Thomas responds, Lord, we don't know the way, How, or Lord, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And Jesus then responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But what I want you to see here with Thomas's response in chapter 14 there, is that he's eminently grounded in his faith, that if there is a way to go, and if you're going there, I want to get there with you, right? Thomas Again, as one of the 12 apostles, he's given up everything. He believes in who Jesus was. He wants to know the way there. In chapter 11, this is the only other place that Thomas speaks. This is the moment in which Lazarus has died. And Lazarus, and Jesus says to them, he tells, his, he tells the disciples there, Lazarus has died, let us go to him. Thomas is the one who responds. Let us, to the other disciples, he says, let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas, like Jesus, realizes that the ministry that they have is one that's going to put them precisely in conflict, If you're especially if you go to chapter 8 or chapter 10 in John. You see that he has, Jesus has a lot of opposition and that they're plotting and conspiring to kill him. Thomas can read the writing on the wall there as they're going to Bethany, which is just a couple miles from Jerusalem, he knows that this all may end in their deaths. You all know, of course, that Thomas would have had access to the uh, Old Testament, in which you have figures who, for the sake of following God, are persecuted, are killed. Sometimes also forgotten is just shortly before Thomas and Jesus, they have um, the stories of this intertestamental literature. You guys may have heard of the Maccabees. Uh, I was actually thinking Jeff's point that um, the crucifixion of Jesus is actually not very graphic. Uh, sometime, if you read the story of the Maccabees, they die very terrible deaths, and it's described in some detail there. But again, it was because precisely they were righteous, they were falling against an empire that was trying to control and prevent the people, the Jewish people, from being able to worship. And so maybe Thomas here, as he says that line, let us also go that we may die with him, figures along the lines of what Emiliano Zapata says, it's better to stand on, to die on your feet than to live on your knees. 
Although perhaps a better way to say that it's just a matter of who you're kneeling to, and Thomas won't kneel to the powers of this world, even if that means following Christ unto death. Thomas here, I want to, I guess, just sort of say he has this passionate discipleship, this conviction, this belief in who Jesus is, that he's worth following. But it's yet to be perfected. Thomas here maybe stands a little bit in for every believer in this passage. Because our belief in Christ is maybe always somewhat limited, somewhat partial, somewhat yet incomplete. And what I feel like is so profound in this gospel passage is that while we can desire to have that faith of knowing, of having experienced and encountered the risen Christ, what the gospel showed time and time again, again in that paradox of faith, is that while we desire it, only God alone is able to open our eyes. Only God alone is able to allow our ears to hear. Only God alone is able to soften our hearts. The ultimate question, I believe, for Thomas and maybe also for us is whether he's willing to submit himself to that divine pathway through which his eyes will be able to be opened. In 1925, there, uh, Thomas says the line, unless I can put my finger in his hand and in his side, I will never believe. I think that this gets and probes to the very nature, again, of believing in good faith here. I think it's important to see what Thomas asks for, because he could have asked for, right, if indeed Jesus is Lord, if he has been raised from the dead here, I'd like to see some evidence. Maybe now there's a throne in which we can see Christ, or maybe God's vengeance will be wreaked on all of those who opposed, all those who had opposed us or opposed Jesus. Of course, he's in a locked room with the other disciples for fear of the Jews, at least, well, in the moment that Christ appears to him. What he asked for in that moment, he could have even asked for maybe just that there would be angels and archangels right when Christ was born that were in the heavens. But the thing that he asked for is the crucified body of the same Lord that he followed during his life. He wants to see the wounds, precisely because what he knows in that moment is that somehow that was tantamount and paramount of not just following a God who's somewhere up there doing something else, but of actually a good God who is trying to redeem and restore this world that Thomas has seen unfold in Jesus' life. And maybe to me what's so profound here in this moment is Thomas asks for precisely to see the Christ and put his hands in his wounds, is that his movement is from faith into doubt through back to faith. That is to say that he believes in the crucified Lord and in his doubt and resurrection. It's precisely through his belief that Jesus was indeed someone worthy of following, someone whom God had chosen, that leads him then to be able to get into greater faith, to see the risen, crucified Lord, who now is no longer um, bound by the suffering and by the death that he experienced. I think here a lot of that line, um, you all know the story in Mark 20, in Mark 9, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples encounter a man who has a son that has a demon that throws him into the water, throws him into fire. They're unable to cast it out. And the man says to Jesus, if it is possible, would you cast this demon out of my son? Jesus says to him, if it is possible, all things are possible for the one who believes. 
And then the man says, line, I believe, help my unbelief. There is this openness here, and I feel like this is what Thomas witnesses here, because when you look at Thomas, he hasn't abandoned the other disciples. Right? Even though he's having to wrestle through the fact that somehow the Lord appeared to everybody else other than him, that he didn't experience that, he still finds himself with them eight days later in a locked room for fear of the Jews, despite the fact that they're all claiming that now Jesus is Lord over all things. He's still there. And in that context, precisely on the first day of the week, Christ appears to him. And what I love about his response here, my Lord and my God, is that it's the response to me of exactly somebody who recognizes the full weight of his inability to believe. That he wouldn't have been able to come to this conclusion on his own. That all he could do is, and that's kind of how I hear his claim there, that when he says, I will not believe unless I can feel my, my fingers in his wounds. It's that same prayer in the Psalms of God, why do you stand so far off from me? That this here is his deepest prayer, Lord, I want to believe that you are raised from the dead and you have appeared to these disciples. Help me, I believe, help my unbelief. And so as he finds himself amongst the other apostles in that moment, so Christ appears before him and he says, my Lord and my God, because you did the only thing that I couldn't do on my own, though I desired it. His response here strikes me as one whose belief has finally caught up with his action. That rather than being in that moment, somebody who is seeking to try to interrogate the truth, okay, Jesus, I'm not sure you really are who you say you are, answer these security questions. What was your favorite restaurant in Capernaum? Right? Select every image here that has a camel in it. Rather than trying to, on his own, determine what truth is, he's seeking here most openly to encounter and experience the truth that he did while he followed Christ. Here I am, Lord. You see the parallels in the Acts in the Revelation passage. The disciples, the apostles, have gone out there preaching the word. They've already met and encountered the risen Christ. And nevertheless, the evidence of this world of its day-to-day -day operations, those powers put them in prison. This would be the moment to ask the question, who really is Lord? What really should you have faith or believe in? And it's precisely through their imprisonment that God sends an angel to deliver them. And then as they come before the powers of this world again, they say, we would rather believe God than men because they have this conviction that the best explanatory, the best way to understand our world is by a crucified and then risen Lord. It's precisely in our sufferings that God makes manifest that which he is doing and remaking all things. In the Revelation passage, we see precisely the same thing. John tells us that he's on the island of Patmos. Why? For being able to preach for the word of the Lord and the testimony of Christ. He's been exiled there to spend out the remainder of his days alone and separated, again, by the powers of this age. And that would bring to question who or what should he actually believe in. And it's precisely in that moment, while it's on the Lord's day and he's in exile, separated, alone, to live out the remainder of his days, that he experiences this powerful vision, as Sammy read, of Christ right before him. For me, these three passages have such a powerful expression of the world that we find ourselves living in today between this collision of the old age and the new age. If we're willing, 
The world's going to sell the story 24-7 of worldly power. It's going to give us all the examples of sin, of apathy, of callousness, of selfishness, of cruelty that we see day in and day out to shred the credibility of the God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's going to try to convince us that might makes right, it's dog-eat-dog, and that selfishness are these fundamental building blocks of the world around us. It's the sort of thing that creates in me that divided or mercenary heart. But maybe the paradox or the challenge here is you read the story of John, of Thomas, of the disciples, is that persistence nevertheless to seek out the crucified Lord among us, the one who promised to give his broken body and his shed blood. Maybe the paradox or the challenge of the scriptures here is that wrestling to be precisely where Christ himself promises to be, where he promises to meet us as we are this gathered body here. Maybe the tension is to say, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And like I hear Thomas doing in that passage, maybe the challenge of this season is to lead us back to that same spirit of prayer. As the season of preparation leading up to Easter, which I think just simply goes to show us that whether we're in a season of fasting or in feasting, they often are designed to lead us back to the very same thing, or at their heart they are. They, they desire to draw us beyond ourselves and our own sins so that we can be united and have that communion with the Lord. And what I would note about the both, both Thomas and the apostles, we can see especially in those scripture places, is that they put themselves again in the place where Christ himself promised to be. That if they, are, if they struggle with doubts and questions, which all of us, many of us at least, like Thomas do, they're willing to say, Christ, I'm going to come seek you out. And maybe that's the challenge that Christ himself says, that this isn't something that we simply believe because somebody somewhere at some point said so, that this is something that can be tasted, touched, heard, felt, and seen in the breaking of the bread and the fellowship and the prayers and our worship in the life poured out for each other here at Cordova. So this morning, Christ invites us, our Lord who's been crucified and now risen to this table. He invites us to come with our doubts, with all of our questions, with our impartial, with our limited and imperfect belief. And nevertheless, to come as an act of faith and prayer to say along the same lines, Lord, I do believe indeed. Help my unbelief in those moments where I experience it in this world. We pray for the ability to say, my Lord and my God. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we are grateful this morning to be able to sing your praises, to be able to be gathered amongst this fellowship, this body of believers, to know, Lord, that we already see witness of who you are in having poured out and given your own life for our sake. Lord, we know, as Peter said, that you are the one alone who has the words of eternal life, or else can we turn to it. And yet there are so many things at times that can seemingly cast doubt on the depth with which you love us, on the character of your redemption, on your ability to bring all things and make all things live in you. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in us 
that faith which, when the world sees it, will also draw them into a moment of being stunned for the good that you are doing and working out. We ask, Lord, to have that kind of radical love by which the world will know us precisely because we know the story in which we find ourselves. Pray this all in your Son's name.